0: May God lift up to us an understanding of this word. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O oh God of laughter and tears, we ask that your presence will be with us as a light and a truth. In Christ's name, amen. It took me a while before I finally matured enough to understand that the first thing that should strike us in this sermon or text, is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Abraham's the one who's heard God's call to leave his father's house and journey to the land that God will show him in Genesis 12. And Sarah, his wife, was expected to follow dutifully, just pick up and follow where Abraham commanded. In those days, wives did not argue with their husbands, at least as we saw in public. They were just supposed to go along, especially when he said he was on a mission from God. Some men still think it should be that way. To be honest, I was guilty of this, Assumption. some 20 years ago six months after anita and i married and we'd moved into a home we had just renovated in atlanta spent six months doing it living in her little one bedroom apartment two cats a golden retriever anita me and daughter amanda one bedroom one bath new marriage After, I don't know, almost nine months, we heard from Riverside Presbyterian Church to ask the question if I would be interested in having a conversation about becoming their next pastor. I shared this with my new bride, Anita telling her that I'm really not interested in this at all, but I always think it's important to have a conversation nevertheless because it affirms my call where I am and I always learn something. She gulped. Um, what's a call? I remember pompously explaining it was, when God, through the church, called you to leave your present congregation and to go serve another? Hmm, she said. How do you know it's God calling you and not something else like maybe fear or boredom or ego? Hmm, I said. Good question. It was Clear at the start that she was not real keen on picking up and following me on a call to Jacksonville at Riverside Presbyterian Church. She lived in Atlanta for 35 years. She had a great job that she loved. We had a newly renovated home and a new marriage. But She said she was willing to go through the process to see it through, while also stating clearly that while she was open to this, it was not her wish. But, after all, how can you dispute your minister husband who's being called by God? (laughs) It was clear she wasn't excited about it. So one morning, after six months or so of conversations and trips to Jacksonville in prayer, I stepped up like a man and and told her what I felt, that I felt called to be there. And and the way I did it was manlike, too. When she went to work, I emailed her. (laughs) I still hear that one. <laughs> Her response was beautiful and strong. I hear, I hear you that you feel called to go to Jacksonville, even though I still don't know for sure what a call is. And I need to be clear, as your wife, that I have not heard that call. <laughs> However, because I am your wife, I will certainly go with you. Remembering this gives me some sense of what Sarah was dealing with. Like like most women, from the beginning of time, it has been expected that if married, her role is in the home to serve and produce children on command for the sake of her husband and the children's success and it is an heroic role when it is freely chosen but it is a demonic role when it is demanded even more demonic in Sarah's day was an extremely patriarchal culture like today's Taliban your only power as a woman is to bear children. That's what you are good for. But for Sarah, the possibility of that was long gone. She was, I think it was Beekner who said, one, she, was, she had one foot in the grave and one foot in the maternity ward. She was that old. <laughs> Married long enough to celebrate her 75th anniversary, she was at least 50 years past reproductive stage, yet it kept coming up over and over again, going back to the 12th chapter in Genesis when God said, I will make of you a great nation and it would be Sarah who would be the mother of the child that would be born that would make that nation great. And in this morning's passage, the promise is given again, made again when those three strangers show up. In those days, too, it was important and supposed to be true for women to remain out of sight when men gathered and also to remain out of listening range, but not just then. The fascinating book Citizens of London by Lynn Olson, about the influence of three predominant Americans to help America engage in World War II as they lived in Britain. There's a description of Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine, a description that rings true for thousands of years of women like Sarah who've had to subjugate their personalities and their lives for the sake of their husband. Olson writes, to the guests invited to Downing Street, Checkers, or Ditchley practically every night, Clementine Churchill was an elegant, intelligent, caring hostess who did everything in her power to make them feel at home. Many used the word charming to describe her. Yet behind the serene, poised facade, that Clementine Churchill presented to the world was a passionate, emotionally fragile, lonely, and often deeply unhappy woman. After making Winston her life's work for more than 30 years at the expense of her children, her friends, and her own needs and desires, she lived for Winston. He, however, did not return the favor. Although he undoubtedly loved her and was completely dependent on her, Winston was a total egoist, Olson writes. His pursuit of political power and his own personal interest always took precedence over her and the children. Catherine Harriman, the husband of April Harriman, were frequent guests at the Churchills, and she wrote her sister, Never for a moment is the war forgotten but women are rather in the way. They leave the dining room right after dinner and then aren't expected to stay long uh, uh, or expected to stay long until the men come out after midnight often to continue their conversation over brandy and cigars. Thousands, millions of women have had to take the back seat for the sake of their husband's success. In the end, leaving them feeling like Clementine Churchill. And here it is in this passage. Abraham jumps up almost immediately after he had just been circumcised, if you read the previous chapter. He immediately jumps up when he sees the strangers and runs into the tent to command Sarah to make some cakes. And Sarah, listening in behind the tent, trying to stay out of sight, but not out of sound, here's the promise again with the angel who said, in due time, I will return next year, and she will bear a son. <clears throat> and she laughed through the tears. She laughed through the hurt, her apron covering her face, trying to restrain any noise that would give her away. What a joke, she laughed. I'm worn out. My husband is old. It's so ridiculous. All you can do is laugh. So that's Sarah. That's her part in this story tragically playing the role of the childless, obedient wife to her big, old, important husband, Abraham. Now let's look at Abraham. The story comes immediately after Abraham and all the boys around him had made the blood covenant with God that, would be, that God would be their God and that they would be his people. And the, and the blood that was spilled, as I said, was the blood of circumcision. Abraham was pushing a hundred, the story says. Now they use numbers, not literally so much as symbolically. The point was he was old. So there's Abraham resting by the great trees of Mamre, sitting at the entrance of the tent, and the passage says that the Lord appeared to him. And from there the story gets murky. Then Abraham looks up and sees three men standing near him. And the way the story reads it, it's easy to think that God's appearance is about the strangers, that God appears to Abraham in the strangers. But the Hebrew translation is otherwise. It reads literally, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day, then After that appearance, he looked up and saw the three men standing near him. And Abraham says, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Is he talking to the three men? A very fine Hebrew scholar named Jonathan Sachs says, No, he's not talking to the three men, my Lord, when he says... If I find favor, do not. He's talking to God. His attention has been shifted from God's appearance to him to these three men, and he's asking God to wait while he takes care of them. Do not pass me by, he asks. And as he cared for them, he did so with great vigor. He ran from the entrance of the tent, bowed down to them on the ground, started commanding all his people to do this and do that, bring water, bring food, commanding Sarah, taking curds of milk and a calf, sets it before them, and as he had bowed down to those three strangers when they came at the beginning to show his servanthood. In the next passage here, after he serves them, it says that he stands above them under those trees, a complete transformation of his physicality. From being on the ground to standing over them. From showing that his whole sense of power comes from his servanthood. Now I know I've made Abraham to be not a good character here. But he's simply a character of his time and place. It, a character of his culture. Abraham is also the very paradigm of what it means to show hospitality. Hospitality the strangers Abraham a man of great wealth a man of great power a man of great promise is also a man who's willing to bow on the ground for three strangers who show up at his camp and serve them a full meal and you know why because the bible tells me so Welcoming a stranger is such a biblical command that Abraham is willing to interrupt God's appearance when God is about to speak and asks him to wait until he serves them. This daring interpretation became the basis for the principle in Judaism that goes greater is hospitality than receiving the divine presence. And in the story, God waited until Abraham had attended to the strangers, and before picking up the conversation he wanted to have with uh, uh, Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, he waits and waits and waits until the next chapter, chapter 19, when he has that conversation. A story, by the way, of what happens a story, by the way, of Sodom of Gomorrah about what happens when instead of hospitality, they find xenophobic, blame, scapegoating, violence, and murder by the people in Sodom and Gomorrah who all seem to pitch in to participate. Greater hospitality than receiving the divine presence? Greater is hospitality Jesus said it, the Hebrews said it. In Hebrews 13 too, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for you may have entertained angels unawares. And Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 25 about separating the sheep from the goats. How were they separated? Well, those on the right side, the sheep are those who responded that when I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I had no place to live, you found me a place to stay. And you, and, and you gave me food, and when I was in prison, you, you, you visited me. How did we know, they asked. The righteous sheep would be at his right hand, those who had done that, and the, and the unrighteous goat at his left hand, those who had not done that. And what this passage is telling us, I think, this morning, is that there is something so infinitely holy that it might be more holy than the very appearance and presence of God before us. And what that holiness is, that, is that we care for human beings because each human being is made in the image of God. There's only one thing in the universe upon which God has set his image, and that's us, human beings. And because we believe that God is personal, someone that we can say you to, we honor this human dignity as sacred. Abraham knew that serving God was about serving the strangers. You see, in spite of Abraham's cultural conditioning, he's still heroic. Yes, he wants to be big man in control. He played the schmuck so many times. We'll hear about the next one next week. But what he shows us is that even still, as a man of power and influence, what it looks like to bow to the ground to other people and be their servants. The promise is, go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless bless you. A couple of years after 9-11, some Muslims, Jews, and Christians in Jacksonville put together this community called the Table of Abraham. We were all children of Abraham so we put together a table to share meals and to talk about our faith, not to try to talk someone out of theirs but just to share our own. Um, And during that time there was a movie that came out about what, what the other billion, what the billion Muslims really think, not the couple of hundred thousand crazy terrorists but what the billion Muslims really think and we showed that movie uh, one night in a uh, a large auditorium and it was packed and uh, I was one of four people uh, on the dais uh, as part of the panel and as we were going into the auditorium we found quickly that there were 10 or 12 protesters there with pickets, telling us that we were all going to hell and other things, fear mostly. And as we got into the auditorium and we found our way to the dais and sat behind our little seat, I looked out and all 12 of those picket bearers were sitting in the front row and all 12 of them had a camera to film everything we said as a way to threaten us. During the break, four of them gathered in the hall, and so, what is it, fools dare to tread? I had to go talk to them. And so I go out and said uh, to one who would actually talk to me, so you're a Christian? Yes. I'm a Christian pastor. No, you're not. I said, can you help me understand why your group is so full of hatred and fear? As a Christian, do you think, really, this is what Jesus wants of us? The guy I was talking to looked me straight in the eye and said, because you are friends with the Muslims and Jews, you're going to hell. We are here to scare you back into heaven. Really? Really, aren't we all children of Abraham here? Children of God? Not if you support Muslims and Jews, he said. I didn't know what else to say other than, okay, I'll pray that you will come to see how much Jesus loves you and forgives you in spite of your hatred for my friends. As I walked away, he said, don't hold your breath. Now that's a man who tragically stands in in the need of God's in the need of awareness of God's image in him as much as anybody I've ever known I'm telling you this story because we're living in a time and place where all of our political allegiance has become idolatrous We are making enemies out of those that do not vote the same way we do. We are not seeing them in God's image. And you know it's idolatrous when it feeds our fear and makes us despise strangers rather than bow down to them. The Bible is clear. It is absolutely clear as Christians and Jews, we have a moral and religious obligation to welcome and care for those we do not agree with. That does not mean we open the country to every immigrant or our homes to everyone who knocks, but it does mean that as children of Abraham and Sarah and as people who follow Christ, we cannot rest in quiet comfort as long as so many people in our community of Brunswick are left homeless and hungry. I don't know what to do. I don't know that anybody knows what to do. But my guess is that we can start by seeing in those faces the face of God and in seeing them this way we might even see something more divine in ourselves when we look in the mirror. We may see the birth of a new child in us even though we're old too often many we may see the birth of a new child in us made in God's image why did Sarah laugh the Lord asked Abraham he knew is anything too wonderful for the Lord he asked In due season, I will return, and she will have a son, he said. Sarah denied, laughing, of course. What else could she do? She was afraid. And God said, with the most unbelievable grace, Oh, yes, you did laugh. And what he also insinuated was, so did I. They called him Isaac, which means he laughed. Who's the he? It's God. Amen.